HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's episode of Cooking Issues is brought to you by Wilma Jean. Delicious fried chicken and other southern comfort food classics, Great Burgers 2. Located at 345 Smith Street in Brooklyn, Wilma Jean 345 for more information. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm joined with uh, usual Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, fresh off another trip to uh, the Harvard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. <laughs> uh, we like that place. Uh, yeah, no, I like that it a lot. Place. I like a, a, a also joined. Well. First in engineering, who do we got? You got Jack as usual, Inslee. We've got a full crew back here today. Who, who do you got over there? We've got Jeet Paul, who's here, uh, training to engineer, What's and up, uh, Wyatt Burns, who's been with us for the past few weeks. Wyatt, yeah, I'm familiar with the who Wyatt. for the first time provided you with a list of unanswered questions. Isn't that groundbreaking? That's sweet. But they, are they okay? Listen, I don't want anyone to get ticked off here, but we have in house Daniel Gritzer, formerly of the the fantastic magazine Food and Wine, now. At Serious Eats, what's your, do you have a title over there, or just like, you know... They're calling me Culinary Director. Wow, that's fucking... That's a, that's a high title. I didn't drop... I didn't, I, I didn't actually drop an F-bomb. Just careful. I said, fra, fra, was what, what I got to. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's a, that's, a, that's a high title there. Yeah. So you're running that thing? What does that mean? No, I'm not running things. I work with, uh, you know, Jay Kenji Lopez. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, he, he has, his title is... Chief creative officer, right? He was. He when I came on board, I think they finally decided to make things a little bit more official. So he's now managing culinary director. So he and what I. What does that mean? Man, we, usually, managing means they handle the ad side in magazine. Uh, no, like you can have like a managing editor. But doesn't managing editor handle the like the integration of ad side into edit? Well, yeah, okay. In print magazines, it's true. The managing editor does often straddle those lines a little bit. Um, here, it just means that. Uh, yeah, you're just making up titles, aren't you? You're just making <laughs> making crap up. He, you know, he he manages the the culinary portion of the or the recipe portion, the cooking portion of the website. Where do you, isn't he moving to like Botswana or something crazy? Where is he moving? <laughs> if uh, if if San Francisco is Botswana, yeah. <laughs> I've never been to Botswana, so I can't say. I have been to San Francisco. Yeah, no, he moved out. He moved out to the West Coast. Yeah, yeah. All right, I like San Francisco. San Francisco is a good town, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good place to visit yeah. the Redwoods, which are some of my favorite places in the world. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And, like, basically all of the Sierra Nevadas, crazy towns full of, like, crazy craziness and, like, wildfires and stuff. Really cool. I like that stuff. But that's <laughs> not why we brought you here. Let me, first of all, why don't we yeah, tackle... Have to do, yeah, we'll tackle tomatoes, like, midway through. You want to get... What? Well, no, you have to say what slow food means to you. Oh, yeah. There's a cool yeah. announcement here. So, at Heritage Radio and Roberta's on Friday, we're having Alice Waters and Carlo Petrini here to celebrate uh, 25 years of slow food. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. It's, it's a long time, you, you know, right? Yeah. I mean, what do you think slow food's meant for food over 25 years? I mean, look. Le- uh, what year was it 25 years ago? Uh, wow. Math. Eight, what's that? Jeez. Uh, yeah, 89. No, no, we're, we're, we're a decade. 89. 90, 90, wait, 1989, right? 1989. 89, yeah. 89, the year I, the year I graduated 89, college. 89, you're right. 89. 
Uh, okay, so let's all look back to what food was like in 1989. I mean, okay. let's look at like where the high end, where, where like people who cared about ingredients and stuff, where where we were as uh, a culture in 1989 versus where we are now. And I think what's <clears throat> what's interesting about it is is uh, you know even in the early 90s, like the concept of um, kind of caring about where food came from was much more advanced in Italy, where slow food was born, uh, much, much, much more, I mean, uh, than it was here in the U.S. at that time. But, uh, you know, you look at the influence of groups like Slow Foods uh, America, let's give a shout-out to Patrick, who is, you know, Martin's one of the founders of that, uh, you know, and I think it's done, it's done a lot. It's hard to say, you know, uh, they were there kind of at the beginning, so I think, a, you know, big player. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's so many people who can be given credit for so much that's happened in the food world in the past 25 or 30 years uh, from Alice Waters, who will be here. Um, but the slow food movement, I think, if you look at if you look at the state of the the food world today and the things that people talk about, and even the the trends that some people now get annoyed with um, in terms of them being marketing lines. Give, of, me, some, give me some annoying. Well, you know, every, everything's farm to table, and then people say, "Okay, well, what, everything's farm to table because every everything comes from you know that kind of well, thing." Well, you know, like, like, like you know, we extended that, right? It's farm to toilet now. Farm to toilet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's going to be the new back page of that, the the. the National glossy. Yeah, you know, remember that's mine. Farm to toilet, like like other people. I've given it to other people, but farm to toilet. That's that's all me. I, and you know that actually fits in with like the great, you know, like American, like American th- uh, thinking about uh, diet and like the problems with American diet and food. Like one of the early people who was uh, interested in that was uh, the Reverend Sylvester Graham. Like you know, would not have actually enjoyed graham crackers, but was very interested in stopping us from masturbating and having excess sex. Uh, sex uh-huh. And he thought he could do this by reducing our meat consumption to almost nil and having us eat only kind of whole, uh, you know, whole grain breads like cooked without like external leavenings, uh, kind of like really what we would consider like poorly made products. And, and so like, you know, he thought that this would like de-inflame our passions, get rid of like the national problem at the time, which was dyspepsia. So he, you know, his, his conception, this is Jacksonian America now, is that dyspepsia is one of the great problems. And it leads to things like adultery, masturbation, things like this, things that he sees as actually kind of morally reprehensible. Remember that dieting in general and and uh, detoxing and and and, and I've written about this although I've never published it. It's all tied in with body hate uh, uh, and moralism about kind of what we what we do and what we eat and, and hatred of, of the body and of the physical self. Um, I'm talking to you, uh, detox people, and. Um, <laughs> And so, uh, you know, that he was very much interested in pooping. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And so, like, f- like the early times, it was farm to toilet. So I think over the past, you know, 25 years with this farm to table stuff, we've really been ignoring the toilet part. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it is definitely the one part of the process that's generally ignored in the food conversation. Only it's, only it's not. If you talk to someone and they go to a restaurant, how was it? It was good, but in the morning, oh... <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So, I mean, people actually treat the farm-to-toilet movement. I think, though, that the toilet thing started in Italy, too. Like, they talk about pooping and how it feels and what the food – like, that's, that's it, part of everyday conversation. I agree with that, but yeah. you also don't hang out with Germans. Do, oh. do, do Italians have the shelf in the toilet? No. Oh, the toilet shelf. The toilet shelf. Yeah. It's for inspection. Is that what it's for? No, yeah, yeah. I, I have like it was to avoid backsplash. No, there's a famous book put out by a guy <laughs> named Alan Dundas, uh, Dundas, who's now dead, who did a study of uh, kind of uh, fecal expressions and and uh, fascination with uh, toiletries in in German, uh, in German folklore and in in you know culture. It's a fascinating book, and it's called "Life Is Like a Chicken Coop Ladder," uh, <laughs> which you know comes from an old German expression that I won't. Uh, get into here, but um, yeah, it's a good. How do one. they inspect it once it's on the shelf? Well, that you know, have you ever had like that style of toilet? And you're like, who designed this freaking thing? It's it's like a skid machine. It's like a Skidmaster five thousand. Who designed this thing? And it's because some people like to inspect the business after it's done. Uh huh. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> Americans, we want the stuff to go away. There's actually another famous book. What's it called? Oh my goodness, it came out of I think out of Cornell. I forget the author's name. 
Uh, Rem Koolhaas, the famous architect, along with the Graduate School of Design, uh, recently uh, participated in the uh, Architectural Biennale for the uh, – and one of the things they did is they had a bunch of small books, each on a room of, of the house. And the one that my wife bought me, of course, was the bathroom because I have an intense fear of public restrooms. Yeah. Uh, I detest them. Uh, I especially hate – listen, anyone out there who owns a restaurant or any sort of public place – Put a trash can near the door and make sure there are towels there, not just those hand dryers, because I'm going to use a towel to open the doorknob in your door, and I wish to throw that towel in a trash can because I have a mental problem that I can't touch the doorknob in in a public restroom. I'll I'll be locked in that restroom (laughs) until somebody else comes in if there's not a source of paper towels nearby or if I don't happen to have a receipt in my pocket. Probably too much information. Or toilet paper. You can use toilet paper. Yeah, yeah, you can. But you ever, like, there have been a situation. There's just situations. I just don't like it. Just put a towels and, and, and a trash can by the door. You with me, Daniel? On this? I'm with you. I think that they need to facilitate that for anyone who wants to use a, uh, a paper towel to open the door. Yeah. That's a common, common thing. Especially because I'm about to go cook your food. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I'm about to go. Wouldn't you prefer that I didn't touch that doorknob? Right. Wouldn't you prefer that? Yeah, you would. Uh, now, the... So anyway, Rem Koolhaas did this thing, and, and you know, uh, along with some other people, and you know, their point is that um, Americans—they're focusing on, but Westerners in general, like we do everything uh, well, to back asswards. So we poop into water mm. and wipe with dry things instead of pooping into a dry hole and wiping with wetness. Oh. And there's a fantastic book from the '70s. Uh, that was redone, I think, or maybe it's late 60s and redone in the 70s called, uh, you know, The Bathroom. And it's a complete ergonomic study of, like, how different cultures, like, with angles, diagrams, pictures. One of our good friends, all of our good friends in the food industry is using the squatty potty and loves it. You know what that really? is? Really? Yeah. Like the kind they have in Japan? Oh, because, little, like, because it's better for, your, better for your muscles. It puts you in a yeah. squat position even when you're on a western yeah, toilet. right. First of all, how? Do, first of all, who is it? I can't. Okay. And his girlfriend made him throw it out because she was embarrassed by it. Why? What, who cares? Wasn't it like hard plumbed into their? Side? No, 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 it's just like it's like a stool on either side of your thingamajig, and your legs are like up. Your knees hey, are like, look! It's a well-known oh, fact to anyone that's been I to my see. fam my family's house that I'm a believer in the, in the wet on wet full waste of water because I have the Japanese toilet seats, which are oh, I think the highest. Those are the dream. They're the apogee of toilet technology. I don't know why we have allowed ourselves to fall behind. I've discussed this on the show many times. I wish I knew who was using a squat toilet because that's interesting information. And how do we get on? Oh, farm to toilet. Okay. <laughs> So uh, the right, reason so the, the contribution of Carla Petrini and Alice Waters is <laughs> yeah. And Daniel, welcome to the tangential radio hour where we just go off on tangents for no apparent reason. I just want to point out that I think that's the most Nastasia has ever chimed in. Oh, <laughs> oh well, come on, Will, no, willingly. Willingly, she, she loves some poop talk. I do love some poop talk. Yeah, come on, like because you know why? She okay, Nastasia's in the food business, right? So she actually. I'm going to give a little secret that you're not going to be mad about. You're not going to, you're not going to be mad about this. I'm not like this is nothing you wouldn't be willing to say on air. Right. What do you not like when you go out after work? Oh, going out with food people who want to talk about food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's you know now she gets to exercise the other subject, poop. She doesn't care about religion or politics. So you got your poop and you got your reading, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then there's you know other less polite things, but well, you know or whatever. Uh, okay. So uh, here's what I figure. Like, I think we should get – now, the reason we have Daniel here today is because, as uh, we've said many – I've said many times, is that tomatoes, refrigeration, with the exception of, I think, like grape tomatoes and whatnot, which I don't really care about because I don't think it really degrades the taste of the seed section so much. But – and there's very little pulp in one of those grape tomatoes. Mm. And so, like, I've always stored those in the fridge because why the hell not? <clears throat> but uh, I've always said storing tomatoes in the fridge, uh, enemy of quality, and uh, – Daniel came out with a series of the articles on uh, on serious seeds, basically telling me to not me personally, but people like me to shove it. And but it's more nuanced than that. So we're going to get into the Great Tomato Smackdown. We got to get some uh, reverb on that next time <laughs> when we come back out of the when we come back out of. I mean, you try it again. The Great Tomato Smackdown. Yeah. <laughs> Tuesday. <laughs> anyway. Uh, maybe we'll do that after the first break. You know what I'm saying? And so I feel that, like, you know, I read all, all your posts on it, so we'll get into a little bit now. Mm-hmm. And this is going to give you time during the 30-second commercial break to read all 6,000 words or whatever it is of uh, tomato technology that you have. What is it, like 5,000 words? I don't even know. Yeah, you didn't look. You didn't yeah, even look. I didn't even count. See, it just came out like a waterfall. I know. Yeah. People like, kept asking for more. Niagara Falls. Well, yeah, <laughs> of course. Because they kept telling me I was wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, look. They listen. There's two things. 
I'll just say this as a spoiler is that I, I after reading it, I you know like some of the stuff is very hard to dispute, and I think people that could just call people out as wrong, you need to learn this. This is the greatest thing you can learn in, in life, I think, is the best thing in the world that you can ever do is to be proven wrong, learn from it, and grow. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like I've learned the best things when I was wrong, you know, especially because I've tr- you try to be right. You try to do as right as you can, and then when you're proven wrong, it means that you've grown. So that's a win. But I think there's room for both of us at this tomato table because you're, you're – people – another thing I hate about people is they read something like – you wrote a lot of words. Yeah. And they come back with one, with one overarching statement that encapsulates everything. That's not the case. That's right. not the, I mean like for instance, we have to talk about what types of tomatoes, <laughs> right. how long, right. what you're doing, what your house is like, blah, blue, blee, blah, blue, blah, blah. Exactly. I mean that's really the thing is there's so many variables and really what – I mean – I started where you were. I was a don't put the tomatoes in the refrigerator guy. Because you're not an enemy of quality. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I like quality. Yeah. Um, I like good tomatoes. Uh, and that's what I'd always been taught. And it seemed that that made sense to me. And it sort of fit with my anecdotal experience. But I'd never tested it. So, you know, we decided, well, let's put it to the test. Let's see what actually happens. So all summer long, I was uh, I was buying tomatoes of different types and different quality levels and putting half in the fridge and half on the counter and just keeping track of and, and then tasting them uh, blind and keeping track of what the results were. And it started to emerge that this thing wasn't really holding up in my tests as much as the rule to never refrigerate tomatoes suggested it should have. And I couldn't ignore that. So, yeah, so then I wrote, wrote about it, and uh, I think they're – fair number of people simply didn't want to let go of the rule or consider the possibility that the rule may not hold as much as they think it does. Right. People, wake up, learn, and pay attention to what people are doing, especially if they're being rigorous about it. So uh, I've had like so many people tweet at me about your articles, and I've had people write in about it. And so, by the way, we're going to get into it in depth after the, uh, after the first break, but... Call in your questions for Daniel regarding tomatoes or anything else to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128 to talk to him live here in the Cooking Issues uh, studios. Now, uh, before we get into that, so where do you live? Now I live in Queens in Jackson Heights. Remember they bought a house? Yeah, 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 but where's your farmer's market? Where are you buying your tomatoes? Oh, well, a lot of them I bought at the Jackson Heights Farmer's Market. Yeah, I don't know which is, any of those guys. Which is run by Green Market. Well, it's a lot of the same. Is Stokes there? It's a, uh, Stokes is not there, but I did, get, I did get a big round of tomatoes from Stokes. Which ones? Uh, I got a flat of mixed heirlooms, and I got a flat of their red, uh, their like regular red tomatoes. Okay. The, the two tomatoes from Stokes, that are, to me, are the only ones that I ever... They're the only tomatoes I buy, other than just crap tomatoes. Are you going to say those small yellow ones? No, I buy oh. uh, the German Stripes, which are large, kind of mottled yellow and red. And the Aunt Ruby's German Green, which are green, mm. re- relatively large, and then get a pinkish red blush that goes around them. And I've been buying these these exact two tomatoes from them for, you know, it's over. It's got to be I don't know, like ten years or something, like nine, ten years. Mm-hmm. So like, I wait for them every year. Mm-hmm. I know exactly what they look like when they're the way I want them to be, and like how long it's going to take them to get them where I want them to be. Yeah, you know what I mean. So like for me, it's like this. A lot of heirlooms, and we can get this in discussion later, aren't very good to begin with. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so we'll, we'll talk about all this. And then we'll also talk about the implications for the. Remember growing up, those like those uh, rectangular plastic boxes. Of, oh, yeah. The clamshells of. Yeah. With, well, with the, well the, the rectangular like mesh boxes, mm. long. They had four, three or four really kind of sallow looking tomatoes, and then they were overwrapped with plastic. And then they had like an image of like a nice tomato on the plastic wrap. <laughs> you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. like that's what I grew up with as a tomato, or like mm-hmm. the diner tomato, mm-hmm. which yeah. is that. Right. You know, those, those things are the size of like, yeah, well, I don't know. You can't see my hands, like a handball. They're like t- small, crappy, mm-hmm. medium, small. Their size are like a little larger than a Campari tomato. Yeah. Which I think are a fine supermarket tomato. They yeah. taste good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, people hate on those things, but they actually they taste good. And they're year-round. They're not bad to eat. They're not all that bad. No. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to some questions, though. And, Daniel, please uh, feel free to uh, chime in. I have some you know, technical questions. 
technical cooking questions I got to get to. Otherwise, I'll, I'll hear clamorings. So Jesper writes in from Sweden regarding rotovaps and vacuums. Now, if, uh, you may recall Jesper's written in a couple times about rotovap problems. Uh, he's making, uh, building a rotovap setup. For those of you that don't know what a rotovap is, a rotary evaporator is a vacuum still that allows you to do uh, like a distillation of flavors at very uh, low temperatures and under vacuum, which means there's no oxidation and there's almost no heat damage to the flavors. Very pure flavors. And you can do it with a, you know, it, you can do it with a normal condenser. It's a piece of laboratory equipment. If you buy them used, you have to be very careful to clean them, blah, blah, blah. I use them at Booker and Dax, the bar. I have to use a very much more complicated way of doing it because I can't distill with alcohol. So in order to keep the flavors intact, I need to use liquid nitrogen and a special kind of condenser. So yada, yada. So uh, that said, that is what a Rotovap is. They ain't cheap if you, you know, they ain't cheap. I first saw one uh, the first time I, I mean, I, I when I first started working at the French Culinary, even when I was part-time there, you know, we were researching all equipment. And I knew I wanted to do some, um, some vacuum distillation, so I built a really crappy one you know, like out of parts that I found around, uh, found around, and it really kind of sucked, but it gave me like a taste for it. And then I saw the Rocas do a, a demonstration at Madrid Fusion where they did the oyster thing. It's the first time I've ever seen the, the distilled uh, dirt going in, uh, distilled dirt water that they put on oysters, their surf and turf. Hmm. I was like, must get real one. <laughs> okay, so uh, Jesper writes in, I've previously sent a question that is still unanswered. I apologize. Uh, consequently, I would appreciate if Dave uh, can have uh, his expertise and opinions on this question, namely in regards to selecting a vacuum pump for a rotovac. Uh, though I'm already in the process of buying one. So now, Jesper's looking at... Okay, so you need a vacuum to run a vacuum still. This is obvious, right? That seems apparent, yeah. Right, because when you lower the, when you lower the, uh, the pressure, when you lower the, the pressure inside of a system, you, you decrease the temperature at which things boil. Just like going up to the top of a mountain, you decrease the temperature at which things boil. Things boil at a lower temperature. Therefore, you can shift the distillation point down to a lower temperature. That's uh-huh. the whole principle of what's going on here. Now, the deal is you need a vacuum pump that can, one, get to a low enough uh, vacuum pressure that you can um, – really reduce the boiling point, especially if you're going to do cooking with it. You need very good vacuums because uh, if you're going to try to make things like syrups and you don't want them to get too hot, they have a very high boiling point. Think of when you're boiling candy down, you're boiling down, uh, the temperature goes up and up. You need a better and better vacuum to be able to maintain this low temperature, right? Mm-hmm. So you, mm-hmm. the other thing you need is you need a, a vacuum that can, one, tolerate some moisture because you're going to mess up and you're going to you're going to accidentally suck some moisture up into your vacuum pump. So it needs to tolerate some moisture. And uh, three, you need it to be powerful enough that it uh, can um, suck the vacuum uh, fast enough. So a lot of people make a mistake. They try to get uh, either these little things called aspirators, which run off of uh, faucets, and they um, – they're kind of weak. They don't have they don't they're not strong enough. They can't suck enough of a vacuum fast enough to really be useful for what we're doing. And the other people go the other way. They get a really a vacuum that sucks a lot but can't get to a low enough vacuum level. So mm-hmm. like a vacuum cleaner or a hood has a huge amount of exhaust, you know, can exhaust a huge amount but it can't do it to a very low vacuum. So these are the problems. So uh Jasper is looking at buying either the uh Buki V700 or V710 pump, which is their standard laboratory vacuum pump. I have the V700. It's nice. It can get down to around 10 millibars, so sta- atmospheric pressure is about 16, uh, 1,600, you know, uh, no, 1,000, sorry, 1,065 millibar. Mm-hmm. So it gets down pretty low, but it can't really get that all the time. It can really get to about 20, especially if your rotovap is leaking and it's kind of a pain in the ass. Leaky rotovap, by the way, for those of you that don't know, leaky rotovap, key cause of flavor loss in a distillation. Leaky rotovap because your air is sucking in through the leak and stripping flavor up and out through your pump. In real life, when you're using a vacuum pump in a, di- in a rotary evapor- uh, evaporator distillation, your pump should run down to its pressure and then never turn on again. That's the best of all possible worlds, and then you're losing no flavor. Mm. Think about it. Mm-hmm. You're evacuating it down to a, to a certain level. You're supposed to boil everything off and then recondense it in the condenser. You're not supposed to have to suck a vacuum again. It's supposed to be like closed loop. Ep, 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 ep. It doesn't work that way, so the pump always has to run a little bit, but it shouldn't ever run that much. Uh, but – uh, the more, much more expensive pump, the pump I have is the one that, you know, he's saying the 700, the cheaper one. Um, and do you know how to make this? I'm, I, by the way, I'm running the show for the first time off of my new iPhone six plus tablet. Oh, check that out. But unlike the, my iPad, it keeps turning off on me. Do you know how to go into settings and make this thing not automatically right. turn off? Because I keep looking down, and then I have to use my finger to sign in. Only, and I was, oh, it's only finger sign-in now? No, I, I still have a password on it, but like it's irritating. Every time I go to look at the question, I say something, I go down, and I, I see my, my lock screen. It's no fun. So anyways, 
So uh, the seven seven ten is a much bigger pump. If you could afford it, uh, I would go for it. Uh, if you could afford the you know footprint, I would go for it because it's going to be better for things like syrups because it can get down to a much lower vacuum pressure. It has another level of uh, pump on it. Both of the and it also you know, there's a thing in vacuum pumps, Daniel. I'm sorry about that. You have to listen to vacuum pump technology. But there's a, one of the problems when you're doing a vacuum is is that you suck. How long is it going to stay on now? Forever. Really? It says. Woo! Uh, so there's a thing in a vacuum where if you get moisture inside of your vacuum system, uh-huh. right, and you're not pumping a lot, you can't get down to a low level. So they have this thing called a gas ballast that after your vacuum system lets a little bit of air in so the sucker can <laughs> pump all the time, draw dry air with it and expel out your, uh, your, your moisture. Get it? Okay, I think so. Yeah. So when you're running a gas ballast to get the moisture out of your vacuum pump, the bigger vacuum pump can still reach a lower vacuum pressure, right? It's just – put it this way. It's got more balls. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So if you can afford it, take it. The other question is you need a vacuum controller, and he wants to know whether he should get the uh, V850, which is the one we have, which is basically just a standard vacuum controller. It hits a set point and stops, or the V855, which is automatic distillation. Listen, I have no idea. I would always wanted to have the uh, 855, and if you know someone at Buki, let me tell you, it's the same freaking unit. All they got to do is like flip some switches and like do a firmware update, and they can convert. They won't. They won't do it, but it's just a software difference. It's the same piece of hardware. Isn't that, isn't that just a kicker? That sounds like Apple. Yeah, right? They're just crippling products. They cripple? Why? Yeah, why? Still still no USB on this damn thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> caller on the line. Oh, caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave. How's it going? Going all right. What's up? Hey, I had a couple of equipment questions I hope you could help me with. All right. Um, I'm, I'm curious, in a cheap uh, home ice cream maker, I think I've heard you say before you like the rock salt ones. The which one? Um, the rock salt? Yeah, yep. Model. Rock salt, nice, yep. Is there any particular model you like or what should I look for? All right. So I'll tell you that this, the sad truth is I want to love the – whatever it's called, the White Mountain, which is the kind of – White Mountain, that's the name of it, right? I can't remember. Yeah, I saw, I saw that on, uh, I think, Chef Dubs like route or something. Yeah, it's good. I have one, right? Uh, it's really good. It's expensive, right? But it's like right. – it's, it's oldie-timey, and the scrapers that it uses are wooden, okay? Uh-huh. Now, I had a thrift store – like I forget the name of it, like Revco or something like this. A thrift store motorized – I also – I was stupid. I thought my kids would want to get into ice cream making with me and crank that thing. And so I bought the Run hand crank eating, one. Probably. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I bought the hand crank one thinking that, oh, we would sit around the table and crank ice cream. <laughs> You're hell no! The yeah, table exactly. by yourself. Yeah, <laughs> hell no, hell no. I see. Yeah, I sit there by myself, cranking on that thing. So, like, if I could go back, I would definitely get the motorized one because I have better things to do with my life than ha- watch my kids watch me crank an ice cream machine. <laughs> but the uh, so aside from that, though, uh, like the White Mountain is really good, but the old crappy Revco, I think Revco, I don't remember one that I had had uh, plastic like scraper dashers on it that actually did, I think, a better job of getting the ice cream off the side of the freezing tin. Hmm. And so I think that – so one of the problems with uh, rock salt and ice uh, um, ice cream freezers, right, is you need to be able to effectively scrape the crystals off the side of the uh, metal container or you get like weird like chunky crystal problems in it. And that's why those companies who make those things don't recommend that you salt the hell out of your ice. They, they give you a, like a, a salt recommendation and they give you a freezing window that's actually a lot longer than I like. Now with my old Revco with the plastic scraper blades, until that sucker died, like I could churn out like easy like – 12, 15-minute batch times on that thing and still get good scrapage on the sides. Whereas my feeling is with the with the scraper dasher things that they have on the White Mountain, that if you were to push the times that fast by salting the hell out of it, that it would lose its scraping efficiency. Hmm. So I've never been – but again, like, you know, I haven't played with the White Mountain as much because, you know, years ago I would make ice cream like, like two times a week in my old Revco one. I paid, I think, three bucks for that ice cream maker on the thrift shop. I'm so sad when that thing died. And um, and so I used to do it uh, all the time. I also bought the really big white mountain, so I don't know whether I would have had better results if I had used the smaller one uh, because when I go, I go big usually uh, unless I'm buying something from a thrift shop. It's just, you know, it's in my nature. I can't help it. Um, so anyway, so that's that's my thoughts. What, am I answering any sort of question or am I just saying things? I can't tell. 
no, no. I think uh, I think that's helpful. Um, I, I I know what you're talking about with a scraper. My my parents had an old kind of crappy one too, and uh, uh, I, I know what you're talking about with the, the weird chunky kind of crystal thing. Yeah, there. yeah. Although um, I, I bet you could modify yeah. White Mountain. Yeah, that's because uh, you the, retrofit. The other with... thing that I want to ask you about is I was reading blog posts from a while ago about the um, the little tiny centrifuge. Yep. Uh, um, what do you think about that now that you've had a chance to use it more? Can it do much, and how does how does the yield going to compare to? Like, I love uh, your guys' Husino techniques. I've been doing a lot of the trying like agar clarification. I wonder how is the yield going to be? Can you use it for much more than clarification? Kind of just what are your current thoughts on that machine now? Uh, well, it's not good for anything that, where you care about the solids because it's very hard. So most of the time when I work with solids in a centrifuge, you're actually dealing with kind of a stratification of layers, and you're not going to want all of those layers. And so it's useful to have large buckets so you could scrape the different layers off. So, like, let's say you're making, like, pecan – you know, you grind up pecans. You can get the oil layer, then you can get the fine nut layer, and then you can get the, like, the, like the, the outer, you know, skinny layer at the bottom. And it's very hard with a machine like this. It's, first of all, it's not going to do nut separation so well, but it's very hard with a machine like this to do any real separation. So it's really only useful for things where you want the liquid on top. Uh, and you have to spin it a lot. I did do a Hustino once of uh for a large group of people and i was uh back when tristan was the bar manager at booker and dax and we were in a basement in bogota spinning for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours but if you want to do something like lime juice where you only need like uh where you only need like you know a couple ounces and you're good you know right yeah yeah we did it for Hurricane Sandy, too, remember? For the Today Show. We, we oh, really? Oh, my God. That was a nightmare. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I, I, I've, never, like, I've never been so, like, visibly, like, just not in a good mood on a, on a, t- on a TV appearance ever. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, visibly just, like, making Halloween drinks in a not good mood. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, it's not that big of an investment. Um, so, you know, if you want to jump in and get it, you know, I'm sure, you know, sooner or later there'll be a much better alternative. But um, it's not a horrible thing to play around with for things like lime juice or small amounts of grapefruit juice and things like that. Yeah, okay, great. Thanks, uh, thanks so much. Really appreciate uh, the insight. Hey, cool. No problem. Thanks for calling. Okay. New tagline. Am I answering questions or am I just saying things? <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to know. I don't know. I can't tell. Uh, so anyway, uh, back to... I think it's finish- a good break time. Well, wait, wait, let me finish Jesper's question first. Okay, then we'll go to break. So uh, look, the 855, the key thing with that is automatic distillation. Uh, it depends on how they run the... Autom- See, for those of you that don't, when you're, when you're doing a distillation, just like when you're making candy, I tell you the boiling point goes up as you're, as you're boiling stuff off, as there's less water in the product or less alcohol, depending on what kind of distillation you're doing. Especially when you're doing alcohol distillation, which is what you're going to be doing, let's be honest, is uh, the, the boiling point is constantly changing. And because the boiling point is constantly changing, you need to sit there and keep and adjust constantly the boiling point of the, you know, the, the vacuum pressure that you're running the distillation at in order to keep a constant level of distillation. That that's how you have to do it. Now, the 855 claims to have automatic uh, distillation algorithms that make it so you can walk away from it. I've never used it. I don't know if I trust it to make the best possible flavor. Maybe it does, in which case it'll save you. I mean, like, I have to sit in front of every liter of product I want. I or someone who is trained has to sit in front of a Rotovap for an hour. Okay? So it's like, if you could just. You know, Ronco, Ron Popeil had said it and forget it, you know, then maybe it would be worth almost untold amounts of money if you were going to do this kind of thing a lot. One last thing you said you had, uh, and this I'm going to get into just really quickly, Jack, before we go to the break, is uh, you're using for your chiller. Remember, when you're doing distillation, what's the key, what's the key thing you have to remember in distillation, moonshiners? Anyone? Anyone? Cutting off the tails. Well, uh, in terms of taste, yes. But in terms of physics, in terms of physics, everything that you boil, you have to condense. Right? You have to, in other words, you have to have as much chilling power as you have heating power, or you'll saturate your condenser. Right? So, the way moonshiners do this is they always moonshine near a creek or a well and they just put it through a boat ton of water, hmm. right? Uh, through long tubes and a lot of water, but they're not doing it at a very low temperature. In rotary evaporation, you're doing your, your, um, your chilling, your condensing, usually at a lower temperature, much lower than tap water. 
chemists use tap water at 20 degrees Celsius because they're doing their distillations higher, like 60 degrees Celsius, and they just dump, dump, dump tap water through the condenser. But they're not getting a very large temperature delta between their distillation and their condensing, which means they're not getting a lot of fine resolution of flavors. They're just not doing it. They're losing a lot of stuff through their, through their vacuum stack, okay? So you need a low temperature, but you need to have a low temperature and a lot of power. So your piece of equipment that you own, which is a Julabo FE500 recirculating cooler, only has 120 watts of cooling power at minus 10 Celsius, right? You're going to want to set it at minus 20, minus 23, start your distillation, and then it's going to – that temperature is going to creep up through your distillation runs. So you're going to have to do smaller distillation runs so that your temperature doesn't get too high before you get too far in or you're not going to be able to maintain your chilling. You need – if I was you and I was going to spend money on something, I would spend it on more chilling power. All right. Let's go to break. Today's program has been brought to you by Wilma Jean uh, from the team behind Nightingale 9. Delicious fried chicken and other southern comfort food classics. Awesome burgers, too. Located at 345 Smith Street in Brooklyn. That's Wilma Jean. Wilma Jean 345.com. Welcome back. All right, listen. Stas is like, we're only going to have time for the tomatoes. Let me, like, here, Jack, we're going to have to have some sort of a catch-up show at some point. Yeah, that sounds great. Like, because I have, I have so many questions A whole here show dedicated to it? To just to catching up. Because I have, like... Nine. I have, yeah, look, I got, I got, I got... Should we put the freeze on right now? The new question freeze? No. What, I have, like, I have to go, I have, like, I have a bunch of questions from Lucas. I have Sam's, like, uh, you know, Autolize for bread... I have cooking black bass. I have salad nichoise. I have salt and penetration. Well, I have who? I have brine penetration. And I have salt, uh, like uh, salting. I have eggless cooking. I have, I have how to make a foam that doesn't break. None of these things seem that they need it right away. Liquid smoke, uh, ISI versus Soda Stream. We're gonna need to do. We're gonna need to do a ketchup show. A special ketchup show. Special ketchup show. How are we going to sponsor by Heinz? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be sick. Would be great. You know, Stas, as you remember, we learned on the show, does not care about what brand of ketchup she uses. Actually, no, that's not true. When I was away this past week. Are you using crappy ketchup? Someone gave like a Sir Kensington and I was like, oh. And you were like, where's my freaking Heinz? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you read Patrick's book, he, you know, he he uh, a firm believer in the Heinz being better than all of their ketchup. Yeah. You know something interesting about the Heinz Corporation? They figured out a process for making ketchup relatively early on that uh, meant they didn't have to use benzoate, uh, sodium benzoate, in their, as a preservative in, the, in their stuff. So they were trying to push through a benzoate brand, a ban early along with uh, some governmental people so that they could squash everybody else who still had to use okay. benzoate. That's some sweet business. They're like, this stuff that – we figured out how not to use is dangerous. But then everyone else figured it out, so it wasn't so imperative that they put the band through. Hey, and we're back on tomatoes. Hey, hey. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Look, you know, Ronald Reagan taught me as a child ketchup. That's a straight-up veggie. That's a straight-up serving of veggie. Sure is. Anyone, anyone old enough to remember this? Tomato ketchup was considered, like, in school lunches. They would talk about what, what slow foods and that kind of thinking is done, Alice Waters and whatnot. Like, you know, back then... Tomatoes were a vegetable. Think about that. Oh, yeah. Pizza. I mean, not tomatoes. Uh, ketchup was a vegetable. Tomatoes are a fruit. My son's like, they're a vegetable. No, they're a fruit. But they are used as a vegetable. I mean, ketchup, vegetable, which is nuts. Okay. So, uh, Jack, when are we going to have this ketchup show? Uh, how about two weeks from now? I'm, go- I'm out next week, so maybe the following week. Maybe we come in early and do a double episode. You want to do that? Wait, yeah. but you're not here next week. Yeah, but we'll have somebody here. Have Liz will be here. We have an interesting Don Lee show next week. We have a really interesting Don Lee. Next week, Don Lee and uh, Paul Adams are going to come in, and we're going to eat Icelandic fermented shark on air. No wow. way. The one week back, I Daniel. leave. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you can come back. <laughs> I kind of want to try that. Who, who do you not like at all, Jack? Because they should be running the station. <laughs> <laughs> Can't say on air. 
Oh, well, we'll find out next week when we show up. Well, we got ten minutes, so let's. All right, so we so yeah. we, we either do a double show next week. No, because Jack's gone. We kind of need Jack for the early one. If we do a double, well, I'll tweet out what our answer is. But we'll do a show where there's no new questions, where we just do catch up on these questions that we've missed. Not catch up, catch catch up, catching up to our questions. All right, so people, I have not missed your questions. I have them. But right now, we must talk tomatoes. And that's actually one of the questions. So why don't you talk about your studies here real quick? Okay, so it started out, let's see, over the summer, I was actually down in Florida. And I knew I wanted Mistake. to... <laughs> visiting Visiting my mom. <laughs> By definition, not a mistake. <laughs> um, and I knew I wanted to get started on it these. It was the summertime. What the hell are you doing visiting Florida in the summer? Unless you're going to a mango tasting. Mom. Mom. You know, there's a pool. All right. All right. Um, so I didn't have access down there to really good, uh, you know, let's say farmer's market tomatoes. Right. Um, but I figured you know, people buy a lot of tomatoes at the supermarket. So let me start this test with these. So that was the first round. And what kind were they? They were your, they were, it was, I got three kinds. I got a sort of your standard red sandwich tomato, um, uh, plum tomatoes, and then some small, yeah, like cherry tomatoes, basically. And half in the fridge, half on the counter. I always brought the ones from the fringe back up to room temperature before tasting, just so that tasters couldn't easily identify which was which by temperature. And uh, the first day... After the first overnight, um, the the countertop tomatoes, the room temperature tomatoes, were clearly better than the refrigerated ones. Uh, and at that point, I was still expecting the refrigerated tomatoes to just be terrible across the board because I was operating under the same assumption that everyone else has been. Um, on the second day, with the so the tomatoes had sat at, at the counter for two days at that point and had been in the fridge for two days at that point, uh, things flipped. And suddenly, the counter tomatoes tasted kind of dull, um, and whereas the refrigerated tomatoes still maintained um, a vibrancy, I would the say. The same level of crappiness they had before. Yeah. I mean, exa- yeah. The bar was low here. Yeah, the bar yeah. was low. <laughs> By the way, when you said suddenly, the song Suddenly Seymour came into my head, which is an amazing song. Suddenly, Seymour. Awesome, Daniel. I love it. Yeah, it's right there. It's right there with me. It's right there Feed with me. Seymour. Oh, yeah. All right, let's continue before we get kicked off the air. <laughs> so uh, not for because not because suddenly Seymour, but because of our time. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, right. Uh, okay. So let's see. To make this quick, so that surprised me, um, and I started to wonder. Well, okay, it 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 looks like there's a point at which sitting out in warmer temperatures can actually be potentially more detrimental to the flavor of a tomato than a refrigerated one. But, and I and I wrote a thing about that. Uh, but that left a lot of questions because these were your your really generic, uh, big ag tomatoes shipped from state to state, picked green, the whole thing. Sure, Pop- crap tanks, crap tanks. So. How does this does this really apply to better tomatoes? So for the rest of the summer, I was doing tests where I was buying tomatoes, pretty much at the rate that I could consume them, and uh, refrigerating half of each kind and putting the other half on the counter, and it and it continued to bear out uh, in in my blind tastings. The findings now my my apartment is hot uh, in the summer because I don't have air conditioning. Mistake. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I pat myself on the back for it for environmental reasons but it's actually, <laughs> actually really stupid <laughs> um and so that's i started to home in on this on this theory that a lot of the studies that had been done the, the ones that i found I, I haven't done an exhaustive search of all of the literature on tomato storage but what i did find across the board all the tomatoes that were tested were tested in cooler temperatures so room temperature was defined as being below 70 degrees fahrenheit and then compared to refrigeration temperatures. And I was finding that in my room temperature, which was well over 80 degrees Fahrenheit, um, <laughs> the ripe... the he's so angry, sweating, too, while he's writing. <laughs> yeah. Can't sleep, face against the pillow. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I, I've done all sorts of crazy things to deal with, deal with the, the, the heat in my place, including sleeping on wet sheets. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, it it continued to it continued to look like at the very least in warm temperatures. Once you have a nice ripe tomato, uh, it actually 
seems to do better more often than not in the fridge than being left out to kind of wilt in the heat. Um, a lot of people were still not happy with those results. They wanted more quantitative data because this was mostly just qualitative. You know, I do blind tastings and say, well, I like this one because of X and that one because of Y and sort of see where the see where everything uh, everything ended up. So then for the third round, I did uh, I tried to quantify it by doing uh, a pretty large blind tasting in my office. I had people rate the tomatoes on a scale of uh, zero to ten on criteria like overall preference, texture, flavor, aroma. Uh, I had different tomatoes. I averaged them all out um, to see to see where things were. I also did many rounds of triangle tests because one of the things that I was finding was that in many cases it was hard to actually even distinguish between the counter tomatoes and the refrigerated sure. tomatoes. So a triangle test, for those of you that don't know, it's uh, two things that are the same, one thing's different, and you see if they can pick out the different one. Right. Um, and... I did an early round of triangle tests, uh, just sort of a test run with a colleague, and he was about 50% uh, correct in identifying the counter tomatoes, um, which is better than what you'd expect um, if he were guessing at random, right. uh, but not, not great, right. not great success in differentiating. And then I did a, a, a full, a much bigger round with multiple tasters triangle tests. It was 24 rounds, I think, and in that case they got... Uh, uh, nine out of the 24 rounds correct, which puts it just about in the zone of guessing at random. Did you correct for where in the tomato they were tasting? I tried to, you know, admit it, like, my tests were not absolutely sound and, and, and uh, you know, scientifically perfect in, their, in how I designed them, but I did try to select cross-sections that had similar representations of yeah. Uh, seed quantity and uh, the, the pulpy part. So I, I tried not to give someone a cross section that was mostly pulp with one and mostly seed with another. Right. I mean, the the one of the interesting things about tomatoes is that the <clears throat> flavor profile changes radically from the stem end to the tip. Yes. Well, that's. I would say that you. That's. There's. I was seeing much more variation within the batches, whether refrigerated or countertop, than between refrigerated and countertop. Sure. Like when, when I know when I'm serving tomatoes in the summer, I'll take a the I'll take off the, the end right by the stem, mm-hmm. taste it. If that one's flavorless, I'll take off a few more slices until I get to the flavor I like and then I'll reserve those for another use and then put the awesome like other side up for service. Exactly. Yeah, there's tremendous variation even within one piece of fruit. Yeah. And in fact even in this when I had my the tasters blind tasting the, t- the the big batch of tomatoes and scoring them. I had scores for every single individual piece of fruit, and I was seeing huge spreads of scores, which is partly there's a level of ar- arbitrariness when somebody decides what's a five or what's a set. You know, people tend to be somewhat consistent within their own scoring numbers, but some people just tend to score low and some tend to score high. But even with that, I could see variations were happening uh, even within a piece of fruit that suggests exactly what you're saying, which is that you have tremendous variation within a piece of fruit, let alone... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I'd, I would say I saw much more variation from fruit to fruit and within a fruit than between refrigerated and countertop. And actually, the one thing I didn't mention is my latest, my last round of testing, it had actually gotten cool in New York City at that point, and so those tomatoes were sitting out in average temperatures of about 65 to 70 degrees, which I had never – my whole theory was, okay, well, if it's really warm, the refrigerator is arguably the better place to go. Because they'll respire faster. They're still, you know, in quotes, alive, and they respire faster at higher temperatures. Exactly. Yeah, it's just accelerated aging is happening, sure. and so you're going to have degradation. Once they've hit their sweet spot, they're just going downhill, so it's just a race to the bottom. Um, what's amazing is that what I was finding was that even in the around 70 degrees, it was not as drastic, drastic. The countertop was, did better, but it's still, I wasn't seeing this dramatic refrigerated tomatoes are absolutely horrible and, and tomatoes stored at room temperature are great spread what that this the, rule would with 100% humidity in your apartment <laughs> <laughs> oh sweet I love that well maybe he stored some with his wet sheets but the uh, had some in the shower uh, you know. uh, so after after reading some on the toilet shelf <laughs> oh yeah sweet sweet on, inside the toilet in yeah. the water on the shelf for inspection so let me because let me, let me after reading it, let me just give you my thoughts on reading it yeah and then uh, you tell me what you think about my thoughts and then yeah. I'm going to kick us off the air okay okay um 
So kind of like my initial hatred of the refrigerating tomatoes comes from, you know, uh, like childhood days of you, people would buy a tomato, a crappy tomato that's mm-hmm. underripe anyway, mm-hmm. has, you know, very little flavor to begin with. And then they would store it in the fridge for like a week and a half. Right. And then, you know, after a week and a half, they would slice it and it had just turned into a – now it's not as long as it's tasteless. It's also mealy and disgusting. Yeah. So it's mainly this mealiness that happens after long refrigerated storage, this mm-hmm. tissue damage that happens mm-hmm. after long refrigerated storage to these tomatoes that, you know, that that, that happens. You know what I mean? But so, so right. I think, that, you know, on reading it, I'm like, look it. So over a couple of days – you're not getting that kind of a damage to a tomato by storing it in a fridge probably, right? Exactly. And so right. what the fridge is doing is the fridge is saying stop. Stop ripening, right? So if you yes. get it to your perfect place, then maybe the fridge is a good place to put it as long as you let it warm thoroughly the hell up afterwards, right? Right. Uh, and I think for things that don't get mealy like grape tomatoes, I store them in the fridge for – doesn't matter. I mean, they lose right. quality, but they're not getting mealy on me. Right. It's mainly mealiness that I hate. You know yes. what I mean? And the uh, and and I think some tomato varieties like uh, are more susceptible to that. Are mealy. more prone to that. Yeah. Definitely. More, and I hate that. And the and the general quality level. I I did see some mealiness developing. You know, for for some of the tests, like the big the big tasting I did in my office, I knew which was which. Um, so I was able to just do my own um, tastes, and I could see that for the Tomatoes that I perceive to be lower quality to begin with, uh, the mealiness was more of a problem in the refrigerator. Um, tasters still had a harder time differentiating when they when they were blind. Um, right. So I knew that I was I knew what to look for, and I could I could see it to some degree. Um, so there, you know, at the end of the day, there's no argument that the refrigerator is a great place to put tomatoes. Um, <laughs> Well, oh, by the way, also, I sh- uh, in case anyone wonders if they haven't read this stuff yet, he was storing them right on the counter, i.e. stem side down. Stem side down. Uh, it's the only way to store a tomato on your counter. Please don't store it the other way, <laughs> uh, especially with an expensive tomato. So, yeah, there, there, but here, here's my thing. And the other thing I took away from it is that, look, it, like I told you before, I buy these two tomatoes every year, mm-hmm. the German Stripes and the Aunt Rubies. I know by color and feel – exactly how I want them to be. Yeah. So typically I'll buy them. I'll buy some that I'm going to eat today. Right. And I'll buy some I'm going to eat tomorrow. And then I'm going to buy some that I'm going to eat the day after that. And I leave them out on the counter and they come perfect exactly when I want them to, like an avocado does. Like, yeah. Like you're buying, just like avocados, you're buying some ready to eat, some that are have a day left in them and some that need a couple days. Right. And so I would never put those suckers in the fridge because I need them to get to their perfect spot. Exactly. But if you have something that's at its perfect spot, I guess I might have to concede that it degrades less in the fridge. Wow. That's what that's what I found. I mean, it degrades less. It's yeah. less of an encrappingment than having it ripen past its Perfect point. Interesting, interesting stuff. You know I hate to do this, Dave. Yes, we have to go. Thank you, yep. Daniel. Maybe you can come back Thanks for some for fermented me. shark. Can I really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fermented shark next week, plus maybe a catch-up episode. Cooking your juice. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>